Recovery Elevator, episode 118. But I, I don't think I was ready to accept the fact that I was, you know, an addict, an alcoholic. I don't think it had gotten bad enough yet. So there was a lot of denial. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. According to the Recovery Elevator sobriety tracker on my phone, my last drink was 979 days ago. On today's podcast, we've got Steph. She's been sober for six months and she's 46 years old. As I mentioned in last episode, Cafe RE, which is the Recovery Elevator private community, is now on a wait list. We're going to wait till we get 30 to 40 members on the wait list before we launch the new group. So go to recoveryelevator.com, find the community tab, and then sign up. Use the promo code RE1MONTH, that's one word, RE1MONTH, to get on the waiting list, and the new group should be open in just a couple weeks. We are really excited for this new group to launch. Okay, let's get started. My HP will put on my plate only what I can handle, and lately, I've been dealing with the black dog. And no, I did not get another black dog. I still have my lovely standard poodle, Ben. But this is a metaphorical black dog. I got the idea for the black dog. My brother sent me this video a couple months ago made by the World Health Organization describing depression. It's all about the black dog. And you can find a link to this video at recoveryelevator.com episode 118. It's an awesome video and it explains a lot. It's pretty cool. Now, I like to keep the topics fun and uplifting on this podcast. And next week, we're going to talk about carousels and puppies. But today, I want to talk to you guys about depression. I've been struggling with depression for about eight to 10 months now. On the outside in my life, things look great, much thanks to great clips and coals. But on the inside, it's like internal warfare. Most days I feel like a broken pinball machine, you know, where the flippers still work on the side, but all the wiring upstairs is wrong. In fact, I really don't even want to record this podcast episode right now. I especially don't want to be sharing it with you guys right now, but that's the reason I need to share this with you guys. Whenever I tell myself, nope, can't share this with the Recovery Elevator audience, that's the answer. I need to do it. I learned that keeping my drinking a secret didn't do anybody any good. And I have a feeling that it's kind of the same deal with depression. Me keeping it bottled up and not even talking to my brother and my mom and dad about it, let alone you guys, it's not a good idea. So here it is. I've been struggling with the black dog lately. Now I'm going to read some of the dialogue from the black dog video. I had a black dog and his name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life seemed to slow down. He would surprise me with a visit for no reason and on any occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. He liked to ruin my appetite. He chewed up my memory and my ability to concentrate. Doing anything or going anywhere with a black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he would sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out, that people would judge me because of the shame and stigma of the black dog. I invested vast amounts of energy to keeping him covered up. Covering up an emotional lie is exhausting, which is why I'm telling you guys right now, Recovery Elevator. The black dog could make me think and say negative things. He would make me irritable and difficult to be around. He loved nothing more to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking, He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling down, sad, or blue, but at its worst, it's about not feeling anything at all. As I got older, the black dog got bigger. He started hanging around at all times. I chased him off with whatever I thought would send him running, but more often than not, he would come out on top. Going down became easier than getting back up again. 
So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone, which never really helped. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. And that's about halfway through the video, then it talks about how to relieve the depressive symptoms. But like I mentioned, my higher power will only put on my plate what I can handle in sobriety. And this is an opportunity for me to get better. My pink cloud was blown away a long time ago. And I'm confident that the work I put in during that time when my pink cloud was present is paying off dividends right now. I know a drink will temporarily alleviate my depression. It will make the symptoms go away. But like I said, only temporarily. Currently, I don't regret not drinking yesterday. And I know if I drink while I'm depressed, well, the outcome could be catastrophic. I don't know if I'd really be around much longer. I know this podcast is about alcohol, but I feel alcohol and depression and anxiety and other mental disorders are contemporaneous. Rarely do we just struggle with addiction with just one thing. Many of us have dual, triple, quadruple diagnoses, making it very confusing. But I thought I'd share this with you guys. I also want you to know that I'm going to do everything in my power to get past the black dog. Now, the worst part about the black dog is when Gary, my addiction, starts ruminating. Now, Gary is my addiction who I've personified. He chirps at me in my own voice. But the worst is when Gary starts to connect the dots, put two and two together, and Gary can see the writing on the wall. Thoughts like, Paul, this isn't going to add up. Or, Paul, it doesn't take a genius to look far down the road and realize this isn't going to work out. Why go down this continuous, painful, sober path? Just drink now. Those thoughts are convincing, but I've kicked Gary to the curb plenty of times before, and I continue to do that again. A drink will not make any of this better. In fact, it will exacerbate it to the infinity. I have no idea what that is, but that's going to be a lot. One thing I've been telling myself a lot lately is, tomorrow is a new day. Tomorrow is another opportunity to get better. And here's the good news. Third Eye Blind is doing a 20th anniversary tour this summer. How does that help me? I need to go. Even if my black dog comes with me, I need to find a way to go. So why am I depressed, Recovery Elevator? I have no idea. You know, why aren't kittens called cattens? I have no idea. I'm not sure. To start, I smoke, I eat pure sugar for breakfast, I don't run, and I don't hike, I don't keep a gratitude journal, I don't meet with a therapist, I hide under my duvet till about 3 p.m. daily, and I listen to Nine Inch Nails nonstop. I'm kidding. I'm basically doing the opposite of all of that stuff. Sometimes it's frustrating because I don't know why. Is it a chemical imbalance? I really don't know. But like I said, tomorrow, it's a new day. And maybe for some, I'm supposed to be a recovery guru who doesn't feel these emotions, who has surpassed his drinking and is recovered 100%. Well, that's me, and I'm sorry if I just let you down. But all I can do is my best. And tomorrow is a new day. The sun it's staying up longer in Montana now. That's a beautiful thing in this part of the country. And I've learned so much in my journey into recovery that if my black dog is with me tomorrow morning when I take Ben for his morning walk, then that's fine. He'll be with me and I'll feel it and I'll respect it. Like I've said on this podcast, I am the turtle and not the hare. I eventually will outlast the black dog. Okay, that's enough on that. And like I mentioned, next week, we're going to talk about balloon animals and sparklers. It's going to be an episode just full of sheer joy. But I wanted to be honest and transparent and authentic with you guys. That's how I'm feeling. But tomorrow, it's a new day. And now, let's hear from Steph. Steph, how are you? I'm great. Thank you. How are you? 
Fantastic. Thank you so much for asking. Steph, let's get right into this. How long have you been sober? I have been sober for six months on Monday. On Monday. Congratulations. How does that feel? Thank you. Feels great. It's amazing. Yeah. And before we get any further, give listeners a little background about yourself, maybe where you're from, what you do for a living. How old are you? Do you have a family? And what are some hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? I am 46 years old. I'm married. I have two daughters. I am uh, originally from Dallas, Texas, but I've been in Canada for the last 19 years, and I'm currently living in Waterloo, Ontario. I am a stay-at-home mom and a full-time student, and for fun, I enjoy cooking, gardening, and hanging out with my family. Nice, and I imagine the garden season is rapidly approaching before we, it is. Before we hit record. It's currently one degrees Celsius up in Canada right now, right? Yeah, that, well, that's what it was this morning, yes. Gotcha. And what are you going to plant in your garden? Oh, everything. Tomatoes, cucumbers, squash. How about sorts. Brussels sprouts? They take up too much space. Do they really? They're just these, these small, petite balls of vegetableness. On a massive stem, on a massive trunk thing. So I'll get them from the farmer's market. Mm, okay. Sounds interesting. I love it. Yeah. Well, let's chat more about some alcohol. How do you, What do you think about that? Sounds good to me. Okay. Yeah, I am curious to ask, when did you first feel that you had a drinking problem? Was it six months ago? Was it a long time ago? And when when did you first realize that you might have a problem with alcohol? Sadly, it was a very long time ago. I I had been drinking for 32 years, and probably in the last 25 of those years, I knew I had a problem. It's something I struggled with for a long time, probably so in my early 20s. There, you know, started to be a lot of shame around drinking behaviors, blackouts, bad decisions, drunk driving, that kind of thing. In my early 20s, I was about 23, I started going to AA. I was sober for three years, but I I don't think I was ready to accept the fact that I was, you know, an addict, an alcoholic. I don't think it had gotten bad enough yet. So there was a lot of denial. I remember my sponsor used to say that, like, for her, she knew she didn't, you know, there was no denial. That wasn't a problem. She had no question that there was, you know, that she'd been an alcoholic. And she used to say that she had no choice about drinking. And I remember not understanding that. But after another 20 years of drinking and for myself reaching the point of being physically addicted, I finally did understand what that meant. At the end of my drinking, I didn't feel like I had a choice. I drank every day, even though I didn't want to. So let's back it up a little bit. In your 20s, you mentioned you were sober for three years. Is that correct? Yes, that's right. Gotcha. And so during that three-year stint of sobriety, which actually is a longer than a stint, that's a good chunk of time, that's longer than I've been sober right now, you hadn't fully mm-hmm. grasped the fact that you would be done drinking forever. Is that what I hear? Yeah, that's right. I, I wasn't ready to accept that. So what was that like? And is that what ultimately led you to relapse after that three-year stint of sobriety? Yeah, but I, I don't, I'm not even sure I would call it relapse. I think I just, I, like I say, I wasn't ready. My drinking had really not gotten that bad. I had actually at the time was dating someone who was in AA and I started going to Al-Anon and then kind of ended up in AA. I, it wasn't so much a moment of, you know, I have a problem with my drinking more, just kind of I ended up in AA, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, sure. strange. But so I, I made a decision to leave, that it, it was just not for me and that I didn't need it. And I started drinking again, as you do. Yeah. And it got worse. And it got worse. Describe the progression over the next 20 years of how it got worse. And did it get worse fast, slow? What was that like? I would say it got got worse slow. I, I did really try after the 
the stint in AA to control my drinking. I, really, when I talk about my drinking, I um, I think it's easiest for me to kind of put in chunks of, of sort of the decades of my adult life. So in my teens, drinking was, you know, the binge drinking and it was, and that's how I learned to drink was, you know, binge drinking. It was, you know, we were drinking beer through funnels. The idea was like, get, get drunk as quickly as possible. Yeah. I mean, I didn't know any other way of, of drinking, right? Yeah, plug your nose and um, just drink it as fast as you can. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. You know, it, you, you make alcohol available, right? It was at, at that time it was, it was just available. Everyone was doing it, but, but over time you, you start to just make it a part of the people you hang out with and, and your lifestyle. In my twenties, I was working in restaurants and bars, and I know you have some experience with that as well. And it's the lifestyle, right? You know, you 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 drink through your shift or or after your shift, and you go out and you close the bars, and you don't have to be up early in the morning, so you you know hair the dog in the afternoon and go back and do the whole thing over again. And so when I was at university, I worked in restaurants and bars, and that was you know sort of that lifestyle. The point I'm making on that is. You surround yourself with like drinkers, you know, people who drink the way you do. So you don't you don't have to really look at your own drinking as being problematic when you're surrounded by other heavy drinkers. So that's kind of how it looked in my in my twenties. In my thirties, after getting married, it shifted slightly to more of the dinner parties and home drinking and, you know, having friends around and that sort of thing. But my drinking didn't seem to ever slow down or or change. You know, other people would would just be, you know, enjoying a glass of wine with dinner and I would end up, you know, on the floor. <laughs> I never, I never sort of grew, grew out of that early binge drinking behavior. So that's, that's kind of what it looks like in my thirties. Yeah, it had it, it gotten pretty bad. I started, I ended up in the restaurant business again in, in my early thirties and it was the, you know, the daily, you know, waking up, having hair of the dog, going to work and the place I worked, it was in Montreal and they not only allowed us to drink on the job, they encouraged it. So it was trying to get the customers to, you know, to drink more. And, and so I was getting drunk every night at work. And it wasn't long before I realized how, you know, it was really spiraling out of control. And so in a rather drastic attempt at controlling my drinking, I decided it was time to start a family. So we, we decided to have kids. And I thought that that was going to fix me. Did that temporarily uh, fix you? It did. Yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I was responsible. I didn't um, didn't drink when I was pregnant, didn't drink when I was breastfeeding. But it didn't take long before my drinking became excessive again. And in fact, I think that those periods of abstinence actually, when I started to drink again, it, it was so much worse. So it wasn't long that, you know, the, the daily drinking was more of stress relief and boredom and yeah, I was I was a stay-at-home mom with young children. I felt isolated. It was it was just something I did to kind of deal with with the the stress and boredom of life. My husband and I used to joke about it. It was like drinking to get through the stress of parenting. We used to call our drinks sippy cups. You know, like kids have these little sippy cups with little lids, and we used to joke. You know, it was like four o'clock. Oh, do you have a sippy cup yet? Yeah, I've got my sippy cup. And you know, it was it was just a it was a big joke. I don't know if you're familiar with the. The movie Finding Nemo. There's a song in it where they're like, "Just keep swimming, swimming," and we would we would sing that song. Our kids would watch the movie. We would sing, "Just keep drinking, drinking, drinking," and that was just our way of you know just sort of getting through parenting was was drinking. Yeah. I don't know much about parenting, but I <laughs> I, I, I have a standard poodle, and just just watching over him has been sometimes sometimes stressful. And I can only imagine having yeah. two kids, and I, I'm I'm sure altering the lyrics to a Finding Nemo. 
uh, you know, soundtrack is, is very fitting. Now, what was it like after those prolonged periods of sobriety during pregnancy and even after the three years? What was it like when you first started drinking? Did you find that you had like gradually ramped back up in your drinking or did you pick up right where you left off? After the period of time in my 20s sober, it was pretty gradual. But it, after my pregnancies, it was it was pretty rapid. I, I could drink, you know, pretty, pretty excessively and, and my tolerance increased quickly. By the time my second daughter was, oh, I don't know, a year old when I was finished with breastfeeding, I was drinking again and it was, I, I was probably up to... 15, 15, 16 drinks a day. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about your, your 40s and the progression that led up to, you know, six months ago, you're, you're 46 right now. And talk to me about yeah. that. So in my 40s, I, I reached the point of physical dependence on alcohol. I was drinking, basically, I was maintaining withdrawal. I was drinking to, just to keep withdrawal at bay. Mm-hmm. And I was drinking a lot. I, I was drinking at my worst at, towards the end, about a bottle of vodka a day. And what were those and, and not really feeling much from it. And what were those withdrawal symptoms like that you were trying to push off? Pretty severe anxiety, uh, shaking, just really strong cravings. Yeah, talk to me about the anxiety for a little bit. I know a lot of listeners, yeah, I've been emailed by them, I've chatted with tons and tons of people, and anxiety is a common thread with a lot of us, and especially myself. You know, after a binge, the anxiety was pretty much intolerable, which always yeah. led me back to the bottle. Talk to me about the anxiety mm-hmm. that you experienced. Yeah, well, anxiety is not something I ever really had a problem with, you know, outside of drinking. But it's it's like you say with um, when you're hungover or when you're in withdrawal and you're you're feeling that anxiety. It's you know, I actually have like a home uh, blood pressure monitor, and I would sometimes check my blood pressure, and, and my normal blood pressure is like 90 over 60. It's fairly low. And when I was in, you know, withdrawal, if I wasn't having, you know, a drink, it would be through the roof. Resting heart rate would be over 100. It would be, it was crazy. I was, I was in danger for years. I was in danger every day. If I tried to quit cold turkey, I, I could have died. I went to Nicaragua one time and I got bit by, I think, 155 mosquitoes. That's what I counted on just one leg alone. I actually had a malaria scare. I got uh, sun poisoning. And I think I would choose that any time over anxiety because anxiety mm-hmm. for me is just the worst. Yeah, um, you know, being hung over withdrawal symptoms starting to rise and the anxiety level just increasing, it was simply the worst for me. And, and talk to me, you know, what was your rock bottom moment? Did you have one or was it several? Talk to me about that. I don't know that there was really any one rock bottom. There was, there was one time a, a couple of years ago, I ended up in hospital with, cause I tried to quit cold Turkey after the holidays, my parents were out visiting and I had my my normal bottle of vodka stash in my room that I was, you know, tucking into regularly. But I was also drinking beer and wine with everyone. And so uh, I was drinking probably twice as much as normal. And after New Year, I decided I needed to, to cut back. I was probably upwards of over 20 drinks mm-hmm. a night. And I, I cut that just in half. And just cutting it in half, I went into such severe withdrawal. My parents called an ambulance and I was um, taken to hospital. And my my kids watched me, you know, get put in an ambulance and taken away. And, and so that was a massive rock bottom. After that, I spent the night in hospital and, and the doctor, I remember asking if I was interested in going into a, a medical detox. And I was interested and, and said, you know, yes. And they looked and said that there wasn't a bed available, wouldn't be for a few days. And then she gave me the phone number, but I, I never called. She gave me a prescription for, I guess it was Valium or something like that to, you know, kind of get me through that week. And after that week, I didn't drink that week, but I took the, the Valium. 
And after that week, I started drinking again. For me, at that time, insomnia, sleep was a massive part of it too. I was also, in addition to the, all the vodka I was drinking every night, I was also taking prescription sleeping pills. And that was just to get me, you know, four or five hours of sleep. Mm-hmm. So I, I, had, I had severely messed up my, my brain chemistry. Uh, I could not sleep without being heavily sedated. I remember, yeah, the first 72 hours for me, any inkling of sleep was, was there's no yeah. chance of that. You know, and, then, and then shortly I'd get, you know, two hours, three hours. Of course, you wake up and the bed is totally soaked in sweat. But it wasn't until yeah. about 30 days where I was able to sleep. And then, you know, about six months down the road is where I was able to go to sleep, you know, without a Tylenol PM and just finally go to bed. <laughs> yeah, it t- took me a yeah. long time for my brain, yeah. you know, to reverse all the damage that I had done to it. And so how, how did you do it? How did you do it six months ago? How did you get sober? How I got sober, I, I did have to taper off. Now, first of all, I, when I decided, you know, yet again, I, I need to get sober, I need to do this, you know, because I really, uh, and let me just actually step back a bit. I was in a really dark place. I mean, for, for years at the end, I was suicidal. I, I knew I was killing myself slowly with alcohol, but I also often thought about killing myself. Mm-hmm. And I always said, like, I wouldn't do that because I wouldn't do that to my kids. But then towards the end, I started to think that I started to rationalize that they would actually be better off without me. And then I started to feel like I I just didn't care. I would be gone anyway, so it wouldn't matter. And that was terrifying. Yeah. And I I want to comment on that real quick for a second is, you know, you were suicidal and I was also suicidal. I had a failed suicide attempt towards the end of my drinking. But, you know, we're often a lot of us are suicidal, but we don't really realize that we're actually killing ourselves when we're suicidal. It's not even, you know, we're actually yeah. taking the action of killing ourselves. Unfortunately, it's just a long, slow, painful death. What we, you know, yeah. for me, which would have come just a matter of time. So I, I find that interesting. And in, in what you said is you were suicidal, but at the same time, we're actually in the middle of the act of killing in ourselves. It just happens really slowly. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. Yes. There. Keep going. And- no, no, it's okay. And I was fully aware that I was slowly killing myself with alcohol. So there at the end, I had yet another of these conversations with my husband that I'd had a number of times before, you know, tears streaming down my face and I have to quit. This has to be the end. I have to do this. And he's, he's always over the years when that's happened, been supportive and okay, yeah, we'll do this. But we didn't do enough. So and, and I'd even had tried a, a number of times myself to wean or taper off alcohol. And I would, you know, mark the bottle or, you know, write lists or even um, doing what I did this last time, which was putting a small amount of vodka into like 20 water bottles in varying amounts, you know, tapering down. But I couldn't do it. I could never do it myself. So finally, this last time I said to my husband, like, we, you know, I have to do this. I really wanted to go to a treatment center. I, I think that's probably what I should have done was medical detox and treatment. But because we have kids and we don't have family here to help, it just wasn't really feasible. Mm-hmm. So... I said to him, I, this, we have to do it different this time. I want all the alcohol in the house gone. I want it taken out of the cupboards, locked away. So he went to the hardware store and got a lock. He took all the booze down to the basement, into the cold room, and locked it up. And we went online and, and searched how to taper off alcohol. Because at that point, my consumption was so high, I, I would have gone into really severe withdrawal if I didn't taper slowly. So we, we looked it up and first established my baseline, kind of how much I was drinking it when it was about a bottle of vodka a day. So over a period of about 10, 12 days. We were looking um, at like a 750 milliliter bottle of vodka. How big a bottle yeah, of vodka? Yeah. Like a yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. Just like a 750 mil. Yeah. Gotcha. So over a period of about 10 to 12 days, he every night would uh, go down and get my, my little bottle of 
of my water bottle with vodka and I would I would start it around I would wait as late as I could you know between six and eight o'clock at night and that was another thing with my drinking even though I was you know um, a very heavy drinker and physically addicted I wasn't a morning drinker I always would hold off as late as I could in the day before starting so my withdrawal and my cravings usually always started around you know four or five in the afternoon so I would I would hold off as late as I could and each day the, the amount would go down slightly and then after you know whatever it was 10 or 12 days I was safely off and I recall reading your email when you reached out to me that this is a very interesting strategy. In fact, I think it's one of the first successful taper off strategies I've ever heard. You know, I've personally tried to taper off without the help of a spouse and it's taper off, taper off, then taper on, 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 on. And then the wheels come off and everything just goes right out the door. But it sounds like you had a very loving and supportive spouse that was involved in this process. And do you think you could have done it without him? No, no. As I said, I, I tried before, even with the bottles and the marking and like labeling the bottle, this is Monday, this is Tuesday. <laughs> and what would happen is, you know, <laughs> yeah. But after, you know, and I, I could do it, I could do it for four or five days and, and I would, my amount would go a lot lower. But after, you know, a week or so, you just, you get so fed up with the, with the process. And it was like, oh, you know, what? I just want to buzz. I just want to feel I've, like I've done this for five, six days. I've gotten so much better. I'm like, I'm doing great. I'm just gonna, I just want a little bit more today. And then of course the next day, the cravings would be a little bit stronger and the withdrawal would be a little bit more. And you know, so no, I could never do it on my own. I could never have done it. Uh, and you took 12 days. Is that what you said? It was, it was about 10 or 12 days. I really wanted to be comfortable. Um, mm-hmm. and, and actually it was very uncomfortable, but it would have been, I think it would have been too dangerous. But I, when we talked about doing this, I didn't want to do it in sort of three or four days, I cut the, cut the amount in half and then cut it in half again. I, I needed to go slower. So we would drop the amount by only an ounce or two. And then maybe the next day, a few more ounces. It was, it, yeah. Uh, and there was one night that I did actually have my amount and went down to him and said, please, can I just have a little bit more? And he went down to the basement and poured me a little bit more, very, very small amount. And I just kind of glared at him and went back upstairs to my room, had my few drops. And yeah, it sucked. It was really difficult. It was really very difficult. Now, did you have your access to a vehicle revoked? Were you chained to a wall during this process? I mean, <laughs> I'm just putting myself in your shoes. And like you yeah. mentioned, you know, the case of the efforts where after four to five days, you're like, you know what, F yeah. this, I just want to buzz. Or your mind yeah. will start playing tricks on you and say, wow, I've successfully tapered off with the help of my spouse for six, seven days. You know, I'm going to get in my car and go to the liquor store. What, what happened yeah. at that point? Well, I think for me, because I was an evening drinker, I was actually, my, my determination and my resolve to, to do this was always very strong early in the day. It was later in the day when the, when the cravings would start at five, six o'clock. That's, that's when, if I'd had keys or had access, you know, and I would have gone, but that's always when my husband was there. So yeah, I wasn't going to go early in the day when I could have gone, you know? It was, it was later when I was stuck at home and they were, everyone was watching me. I wasn't going anywhere. That's when I had to just suck it up. And I wanted this. I really, I, I knew that this was my last chance at getting sober. I was going to die. I so knew. after the so, 12 days, you know, you've successfully weaned off alcohol. Congrats. I think it's very interesting. I personally don't recommend it to listeners out there, but no. hey. You know, there's, there's, there's no one concrete pathway to sobriety. So I'm really glad we got your intake and we heard about how you did it. But how did you do it after day 12, 13, 14? Because I imagine the first week, the first couple of days, you know, you're, you're living a new life without alcohol. What was that like and how'd you do it? Yeah. Well, 
what I did, um, and again, I was really afraid for my life. So I knew I needed to put everything into this. So one of the first things I did was went online to look for, you know, sort of how, look for support. I found Kevin O'Hara. He has a, a website called Alcohol Mastery and a private uh, or secret Facebook group. So I joined that and I took his video course, How to Quit Drinking Alcohol. And so I immediately had the support of, of other people in recovery. I also basically, I tried to turn my life into a sort of treatment center as such. I mean, because I wasn't able to go. So, you know, as I say, the booze was locked up. I didn't go anywhere during the day. I started my day with affirmations and reading, you know, recovery books and and watching pod, listening to podcasts and watching, you know, um, interviews or you know anything I could kind of get my heads on ha- hands on. And I was on the recovery Facebook group all day, every day, uh, posting and and commenting and just getting really involved. And that just became my my routine for you know it still is today really but very in, you know sort of in, intensely for about 90 days that's that's what i did yeah and how have you noticed your emotions your physical and mental state evolving and changing over the last 6 months oh my gosh well the beginning was a roller coaster and i, I you know i'd heard that that very normal in recovery but i i was surprised at how how up and down my emotions were so th- and that was i don't know a month, six weeks, where I was really up and down with my emotions. But looking back over over the six months, and especially doing things like mindfulness meditation and just reading about mindfulness, and and you know, I'm I'm growing quickly and learning, and I respond to things rather than react so much differently than than I did six months ago or four months ago. And I understand you have a YouTube channel and a, and a blog. You've kind of documented this process for the previous six months. And, and what, tell me about those. And you know, is that an essential part of your recovery? And how did that stuff start? The blog, how that started, basically, as I say, I was posting on our Facebook you know, recovery group all the time. And I would often do these really long posts that my friends would joke and call them war and peace. But I would, I would do these long posts and people started to respond and, you know, really think you're a great writer and, you know, you should, you should start a blog. And so I just took those writings and I put them on a, on a blog. It's called Be Stirred. It's on WordPress. Yeah. So that's how that, that's how that started. And the, the YouTube channel actually is, is something I do with a, a friend. He's my accountability partner, sober buddy. His name is Glenn and he's from my, my group and we started it together. So we, he's put some of his, sort of video blog uh, videos on and I've put a, a few of mine and we've also started interviewing people. So that's kind of just a new thing we've just started doing. But uh, yeah, it's been it's been a, a huge part of my recovery, as has I said, this Facebook group that I'm on. And one thing that we do is three times a week, uh, we do group Skype calls, which I run. I get, you know, everyone, I, I post on the group, we're going to do group Skype at this time on this day. And I get people to, you know, send me their Skype contact information and I send out the call and start the call. So it's just getting really involved in this group has been huge for me staying sober. What's the name of the YouTube channel? The YouTube channel is called The Way Back. The Way Back. Awesome. I love it. And what have you learned most about yourself in recovery in these last six months? Probably that I am a lot stronger than I, than I realized. I think I felt like my, my addiction, that I, that I was a weak person because I couldn't get a handle on this for so many years. But I guess getting sober, I realized it's part of what made me strong. And what's on your bucket list in sobriety? What, what do you really want to achieve in the upcoming months, years? 
What I really hope to achieve is to help other people. If I can help one person, you know, to to get sober and to, you know, find themselves, uh, it, it would be worth it. Everything I've been through, all the pain, it would be worth it if I can, if I just know I'm helping other people. Yeah, it means a lot to me. Well, really the nuts and bolts of recovery from what I have witnessed is even if you're helping one person, if that's your mindset, you're going to be helping yourself. And that's, that's one of the best things about the way recovery is structured is, you know, I, I selfishly started off on this mission to create accountability for myself to stay sober with mm-hmm. the podcast. And, you know, day three, after I launched the podcast, I got my first email and they haven't stopped since. And, you know, helping other people, it's, it's almost like a drug in itself. It's, it's really rewarding and I love it. And it's helped me stay sober and with, along with accountability. So, um, I totally hear you on that. And Steph, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions within 30 to 60 seconds, that would be great. Are you ready? Okay. I'm ready. All right. Number one, Steph, what was your worst memory from drinking? I wouldn't say there's really one worst memory I can point to. It's more all of the non-memories. So all of the blackouts over the years that not knowing what I've said or done, you know, just the embarrassment of, you know, telling someone something and having them say we had that conversation. Yeah. <laughs> That's been a common response on this. I've heard some great memories or some tumultuous memories, shall we say, but also the lack of memories. You know, I was, I was blacking out five to seven nights a week in Spain and, you know, to tie that up, that's probably a year of my life that's just gone. So Mm -hmm. I wish I could have that back. Next question. We've all heard of the aha moment. When was your oh shit moment indicating that you really couldn't control your drinking? When I realized how dangerous and deadly this thing is, but I couldn't stop. I felt trapped. And that is a scary moment for sure. And number three, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward, Steph? Well, as I, you know, I just touched on, I just to continue to reach out to other people in recovery and to those who are struggling and, and to try and help by sharing my experience. Perfect. And next question, I recall you saying in early sobriety, and it's still part of your routine today, you, you've got a lot of resources available mm-hmm. to you and you, you listen to podcasts, read books, read blogs. What are some of your favorite resources in recovery? Well, probably my, my favorite resource is my online Facebook uh, recovery group. It's called Onwards and Upwards. So that's uh, probably my number one resource. Perfect. And in regards to sobriety, what's the best advice you've ever received? Step out of your comfort zone. Boom. Yes, that is a big one because sobriety, unfortunately, is not located inside of your comfort zone. Believe me. I I, I bordered the uh, the circumference of my circle for a long time. I didn't find it. Mm -hmm. Next question. What parting piece of guidance can you give to listeners who are in recovery or thinking about getting sober? Well, I can only share what's worked for me, and that is that I had to put as much time, energy, and thought into getting sober as I did into drinking. And for me, that was pretty much every waking moment at the end. I was either drinking, thinking about drinking, uh, or when I was going to drink next, or I was feeling shitty about drinking. You know, it was all-consuming. So for me, sobriety had to be all-consuming as well. I love it. And before we depart, give listeners your own customized, you might be an alcoholic gift line. If a big part of your decision to start a family is a way of controlling your drinking, you might be an alcoholic. <laughs> I've never heard that one before. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> it makes a lot of sense. So, well, Steph, thank you so much for joining us today and helping me stay sober. Much appreciated. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We've all got a to-do list that we follow, and I feel like I've been fairly productive today. 
As each task gets done, I cross the item off the list with my pen and say, damn, I am producive. Yes, so producive is Mr. Paul. You might be thinking to yourself, did you just say productive or are you meaning to say productive but saying producive? Well, I'm actually saying producive, but I mean to say productive. And a point I'm trying to make, this is progress, not perfection. I recently updated the Recovery Elevator Sobriety Tracker app. I'd scoured through each page for typos, for grammar errors, for graphics in the wrong place, but I seemed to miss on the very first page that productive was spelled producive. That's the first page I looked at on every round of editing, and I missed producive. Well, when the app launched, I got about 20 emails saying, hey, just to let you know, the app looks great, love the new look, but producive, what the F is that? Major hand to forehead moment, but I just laughed. I can't take myself so seriously. Everybody makes mistakes. That's why there is an eraser on the end of pencils. So keep in mind, this whole thing is progress, not perfection. The whole app isn't a waste. In fact, it's very producive. I mean, very productive. The app used to be 99 cents. Now it's free. So check the app out. And if you can get past the blatant typos, go ahead and write a review on the app. That'd be awesome. Recovery Elevator. We took the elevator down. We got to take the stairs back up. We can do this.